John, you've been wanting to have a conversation like what's up next for quite a while about cold and invasive plants. Rob Vanette is a research biologist with the U.S. Forest Service and director of the Minnesota Invasive Terrestrial Plants and Pest Center at the, or MITPIC, at the University of Minnesota. Rob, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, good morning. Happy to be here with you. Good morning, good morning Rob. Nice to see you. Uh, yeah, few people in Minnesota, you know, go out of their way to wish for 40 below zero weather, but I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you, John. <laughs> I, can you start off by telling us a little bit about what it is you do, and maybe can you go through some of the uh, more formidable challenges that we face in terms of pests, uh, plant and animal? Sure. So my job, both with the Forest Service and with the university, is to think about new terrestrial invasive species. So these are new insects, new diseases, new weeds, often coming from very different parts of the world. And my job is to figure out what kind of damage they might do if they make it to Minnesota. And those that are here, how widely might they uh, become distributed in the state? So the classic example is something like emerald ash borer. I think people have heard a bit about it. And, you know, when it first showed up in the United States back in 2002, there were a lot of questions about how widely distributed it might be in the country. And Minnesota is a special place. We sort of recognize that every winter because our winters are so much colder than other parts of the country where some of these new invaders get a foothold. So it's really under important for us to understand how they respond to things like winter so we can figure out where they might go and what sorts of damage they might do. But there's a long list of things that we're worried about. So we've got things like uh, invasive species that are pretty well established in the state. So oak wilt, uh, buckthorn. We've also got... Um, in addition to emerald ash borer, we're worried about mountain pine beetle coming. We're worried about the Asian longhorn beetle uh, that's in parts of the United States. We're worried about Japanese knotweed, uh, a widely planted ornamental that seems to be doing a lot of damage here. So we have probably a watch list of over 200 species that we're keeping a close eye on, and that list keeps growing through time. You know, you you mentioned Japanese knotweed, and uh, I remember when I first encountered that. And one of the things I noticed about it was that the butterflies loved it. And uh, are there are there some invasive species that might bring benefits as well as their downside? <laughs> you know, and that's a tricky part is that some of these uh, critters have been around long enough that they actually do provide a few benefits. So a really interesting example is buckthorn. And, you know, it was originally planted because it forms a beautiful hedge. And it'll form those hedges in places maybe where we don't want them. But in urban landscapes, it'll often form a green screen, um, even where it's unintentionally planted. So folks often feel like if that buckthorn gets removed, it sort of opens up the landscape and they're starting to see buildings and traffic that they may not have seen before. And so, yeah, buckthorn in some ways does provide a benefit. But by and large, these invasive species are more harmful than they are beneficial. So let's cut to the chase. Uh, how cold does it have to get for uh, 
some you can mention names, I could mention some names, but just some species, plants or animals. How what what's the what's the line below which we need to go? <laughs> well, John, you know that's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not trying to trick you. <laughs> no, I know that, but I think it's important for your listeners to remember that there isn't one magic line. Um, it really depends on the species, because insects, plants, uh, diseases even have all evolved very different ways to handle extreme cold temperatures. So emerald ash borer is one that I've certainly spent a lot of time recently working on. And what we learned for that one is that when it gets to around minus 20 Fahrenheit, that's where I like to say things get interesting. And so that's about the temperature that we would expect about half of those overwintering emerald ash borer larvae to die. When it gets to minus 30, we expect about 90% of them to die. And so... It's hard to get rid of every last one of them. Uh, it has to get extremely cold. Um, but if you get down to around that minus 30 mark, there's a big impact on the population. Now, let me, can I compare that with one of our natives though? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, there some of our natives are not necessarily the best uh, critters out there either. And so some of your listeners may know what's happening in our tamarack forests. Mm, I have a tamarack forest in my front yard and I know exactly. Yes, indeed. And so a lot of those forests are contending with an insect called the eastern larch beetle. It's been having outbreak, a significant outbreak for uh, many years now. What we've learned with that insect is that it overwinters in two different life stages, both as a larva and as an adult. The larvae will handle temperatures down to minus 58. That's something. The adults, the adults comparatively are wimps. They can only handle minus 40. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, only. <laughs> right. I think we've had minus 40 up here once in the last 10 years, and, and it's probably fewer than that over the long term. It's just not a temperature we're reaching anymore. No, that's that's sad to see because yeah. those temperatures really do help regulate our pests. So my question to you then would be if, let's say it gets to minus 30 and we've killed off 90% of our emerald ash borers, are the 10% left behind, are they genetically now engineered to be more cold tolerant? In other words, are we kind of pushing the pushing the temperature down by wiping out those that can't take, you know, minus 30 killed off my grandpa, but I survived. And so maybe, you know, maybe my offspring will survive minus 30, minus 40. Who knows? I mean, is that right? Now, John, what you're talking about is Darwin's natural selection in action, right? <laughs> so we we think that those survivors may be carrying some traits that would allow their offspring to do better. We don't. The short answer is we don't know. We've been looking for that through the years in watching these emerald ash borer populations, and we're not necessarily seeing that. What we think is that there's a lot of natural variation within the population. Um, that's one of the tricky things with invading species is they don't have a lot of genetic variation to begin with. It's often started with just a handful of individuals that get that beachhead population and they build and grow through time. Um, so there's not a lot of genetic variation for selection to act on. 
So what we're looking at is probably just natural variation in the population. Okay. All right. Uh, our, our eastern larch beetle, uh, the one that's de- decimating the, the tamaracks in front of my place, uh, are they... <sighs> Are they going to continue to be a problem, or, or is there is there anything out there that looks like it might develop as an enemy to them? Uh, do they have, uh, you know, if if something like that comes in, is there something that would maybe preys on other species that might look at them and go, oh, great food source? Yes, there are. So all of our native insects have a whole suite of other insects, some fungi all that are naturally designed to attack them. And I want to acknowledge the work of one of my colleagues, Dr. Brian Akama at the University of Minnesota. He's a forest entomologist and is working on that very question, looking to see which of our native insects might be responding to this bark beetle outbreak. But one of the things that we're all very concerned about is this may be a situation that's a little out of control at the moment. um, And it may be very hard for those native natural enemies to catch up, at least in the short run. And and my father was a forester, and, and uh, years ago when the uh, forest tent caterpillars would have a, an, an eruption in an area, an outbreak in an area, he would sometimes say, you know what, some of those are, are going to get trapped in the inside of this food source, and they're going to starve to death before they can walk out to where they can find more food. Is there any indication that, like, well, the emerald ash borer, for example, when it wipes out the ash, what happens? Or when the, when the larch beetle wipes out the tamarack, where's that going to go? Well, these are the boom and bust cycles that a lot of either predators and prey or... Uh, insects and plants, they all go through this. And so when there's plenty of food around, life is good. And those populations will continue to grow. And when that food runs out, that's probably one of the biggest checks on the population. And they'll begin to crash. Those numbers will begin to diminish. And if there are some lingering plants around, some lingering ash trees, those will begin to recover. And that's one of the exciting things that some other colleagues are working on. They're actually seeing what they call lingering ash back in parts of Ohio and Indiana where emerald ash borer has been so devastating. And they're starting to see trees recover and they're trying to bring those trees into a breeding program uh, to help the species throughout its range. Is there some indication that the, that the, the ash has developed a, a resistance to the to the bug or is it just that the bug has moved on because there was no food available and these are ash that were sort of spared? That is the million dollar question and that's what the research is trying to determine because you don't want to breed a tree that actually has no resistance to it. Right. So there are several tests that they put these trees through to make sure that they are indeed resistant and that that resistance can be passed on genetically in a breeding program. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what's keeping you up at night these days? Uh, I, I mean, the emerald ash borer seems particularly onerous to me, and and the uh, once entitled uh, the gypsy moth. I've, I've I don't know the new name of it now, but oh. uh, are there are there other things that you know of that uh, that the general population is not yet aware of that uh, are going to be huge problems? 
Well, there are some that we're really worried about. You know, John, one of the, the biggest threats to our forest right now is an insect that we don't have here. And some of your listeners may be familiar with a mountain pine beetle. Oh, yeah. So this is an insect that's native to the western United States, western North America. We're lucky that we don't have it here in Minnesota. But if it did get here, we're learning that our pines appear to be very good food for this insect. In fact, we haven't found a, a pine tree that it doesn't like. And so we're doing research right now to try and keep it out of the state. That one really does keep me up at night. For, oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, this is the same beetle that out west has finally managed to sort of climb up the the mountains and get at the white bark pine. Is that the one we're talking about? This one has really expanded its range, absolutely. So if any of your uh, listeners have traveled back west and may have seen entire mountainsides of pine, just turn red from the activity of this beetle. Literally millions of acres of pine trees killed by this one insect. And of course... Up through Canada, there is a natural pine belt yeah. that, that this insect can move through, and right. it brings us right to Minnesota. Yeah. Hey, Rob, you just said you're doing research to keep it out. How do you do? You know how to keep it out? I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a variety of techniques that we use. We don't rely on just one approach because that never works. But one of the things that we're working on right now is developing um, very sensitive lures to try and trap the beetles early if they get in the state. And then working with folks in the Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Agriculture, they're running traps throughout the state to make sure that it's not here. We're also looking at other pines to see how they might respond. And then we're working with foresters to see are there densities of pine trees that if you Sort of, again, back to this idea of limiting the number of trees, the amount of food that's there. It's another way to sort of keep the damage in check. Hmm. Yeah, what about plants? I mean, we mentioned buckthorn. Uh, wild parsnip is one that uh, I see a lot of uh, a little bit south of here, but some in the Grand Rapids area too. Are there are there other plants that are coming in that we want to be on the alert for? And, and can people... You know, if they encounter these things, can they do something about it? Boy, John, this is a really great point. And there are some of these plants that have been around so long that we almost take them for granted. In your neck of the woods, tansy is one that I'm not sure uh. gets the respect it deserves. Tansy is a nasty plant, and it is very hard to manage. And so that's one that we're encouraging people to report. Um, there are a number of different publicly available services where people can report their findings. We recommend, it's called the EDMAPS, E-D-D maps. It's for um, early detection reporting. And it's a, it's a great service because the scientific community takes those reports from the public and uses that information to help forecast where these plants might go in the future and what damage they might cause. These EDD maps, are they, is this a, an online thing that we can direct our listeners to? Absolutely. So eddmaps.org, um, and there are all the directions there on how to report a sighting of a new species. All right. We'll get after that for sure. We'll keep them on on notice. Uh, Rob, 
Thanks for joining us this morning. This has been a conversation that uh, I would uh, love to continue for for hours and hours. There's so much to learn and so much to uh, to be made aware of. But I want to thank you for taking the time this morning to join us and to uh, alert our listeners to some of the threats that we face. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be with you. All right. And happy Valentine's Day. Oh, and happy Valentine's <laughs> Day to you, Rob. <laughs> that was Rob Vanette. He's a research biologist with the U.S. Forest Service and the director of the Minnesota Invasive Terrestrial Plants and Pest Center, MITPIC, at the University of Minnesota.